Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Thank you. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. If I was a more clever podcast host, I would have timed this a little bit better and had my 50th episode coincide with this, but alas, I'm on episode 47. As I turn 50 today, I wanted to take some time to reflect on my career and those who have helped me get to where I am today. Since I have my own podcast, a place where I can record things to put out there for anyone to listen to, what better avenue than this to spend some time reflecting? So on today's episode, I'll be looking back and giving you some background to my story and taking some opportunity to say thanks to many people who have been instrumental in helping me become the physician and person I am today. I'm Dr. Mark Halsted, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. The Big 5 a half a century. I really, it's kind of interesting reflecting back on this, this age and why it's such a big milestone. Not that it's something that couldn't be reached, but you know, I have a personal experience with my mom. Those of you who know me well and know my background, my mom passed at age 36 when I was just 15 from metastatic breast cancer. It certainly causes you to question a little bit your mortality at a young age. And where will you end up? And is it going to be something that your life is going to be cut short in relative perspective than what you would normally expect? That experience, you know, just seeing my mom get the diagnosis of breast cancer, her mom also had was the first catalyst for me becoming a doctor. I I loved science and math in high school. I loved writing. Uh, I remember two teachers very fondly during my high school years, Mr. Joe Melter, who was my chemistry teacher, and Mrs. Elise Michella, who was a Latin teacher in the school, but also taught creative writing. And she was the advisor to the school newspaper, The Tyro, which I eventually became co-editor of during my senior year. I worked my way up from a sports writer to the sports editor and then an assistant editor my junior year and then eventually a co-editor during my senior year. And Mrs. Michelle was really instrumental to me for many respects. She gave me my first true leadership opportunities, allowing me to be co-editor and have some creative freedom, but also to challenge ourselves a little bit. And, and I ran with it. But Mr. Melter really solidified my love for science. We nicknamed him, or at least I did, the Mellow Melter, as he was such a calm guy, very quiet, very reserved, but just such a nice person in general. He was a great teacher and really saw all of us as individual kids in a way that many other teachers I didn't really seem did so at that time, Uh, or at least that's the impression I took away from my interactions with him. And I remember both of those teachers from my high school years very fondly. I certainly have lots of memories and stories uh, of other teachers that uh, came along the way, but those two really do stand out to me, and and I truly do appreciate uh, everything that they did for me in my high school, those formative years. I did have my first sports medicine experience, actually, my freshman year in high school. I was running cross country, and then I ran track in the spring. And living in Wisconsin, when you start your track, there is indoor track season, but we didn't have an indoor track at my high school. And the coaches there, they tried to make me both a distance runner, which was really my thing, but also a hurdler as they thought I had some potential as a hurdler. And unfortunately, doing repetitive hurdling and also doing my distance running and being in the winter time in Wisconsin, where probably my vitamin D level was not very good, I got a stress fracture. I saw an orthopedist in Milwaukee. I can't remember the life of who it was, actually. So obviously, it was a very impressionable uh, <laughs> experience for me. So really, sports medicine didn't click with me there, but that was my first real 
real interaction with sports medicine. And obviously, I have a fondness for any of my patients that come in who do have tibial stress fractures. I can relate for those that have those during their track seasons, giving my personal experience with that as well, and having to miss my indoor track season during high school my freshman year. But then high school and college, it also led to some other opportunities. I had a part-time job from my sophomore year in high school through the second year of med school that I was selling shoes. First at a place called Warehouse Shoes in Milwaukee that no longer exists. And then eventually to the athlete's foot, that chain that you probably are familiar with that's not around much anymore in both Madison and Milwaukee. I know they still have some stores around the country. And I had some leadership opportunities there as well. I, I learned a little about the foot from an anatomy standpoint as the athlete's foot really kind of did a lot of training for us, actually, as far as just foot anatomy, what should we be looking for, the pronators, supinators, neutral stance, all those types of things. And I, I just and I ate that stuff up. And then I also had opportunities to work with runners and, and, and I learned a lot about from when shoe companies came in and had the opportunity to learn more about running shoes. And little did I know how that influence would have my decision as a sports medicine doc as well, because I really was fascinated by this part of sports medicine and footwear, but it really also opened me up. I didn't consider myself to be a super outgoing person. I still don't consider myself to be a super outgoing person, yet I host a podcast kind of weird. But that job, it, it helped me be more comfortable just talking with people, actually like doing an interview, so to speak, of finding out what people were there for, dealing in customer service, and also just kind of helping people try and figure out what they may need from a footwear standpoint, at least, to accomplish their sports or physical activity perspective. And, and I love having little interactions with my patients in the office, especially for some of the original shoes, the OGs that people wear for these retro shoes that come in from various brands. And I kind of quiz the patients that I see these teenagers as far as do they remember who the original person was who wore that shoe. And I tell them they have to, to figure that out by the next time they come in to see me if they don't know. Otherwise, I don't give them the authority to wear, <laughs> wear that tennis shoe anymore. It's, it's a fun little way to interact with some of my teenagers. And it really, anybody who knows me and probably much to my wife's chagrin, I'm still a sneakerhead. I have way too much love of tennis shoes and Unfortunately, particularly Nike as a brand, uh, people will know that I, I'm a big Nike fan in general. So if anybody from Nike is listening here, and if they are looking for a 50-year-old sports medicine doctor to be employed by Nike, I would be happy to take a, a phone call from you uh, if you were willing to offer me a job as far as something else to consider in my career. That was always something that fascinated me was just the footwear industry. And it would be interesting to see how that could meld in with the sports medicine world. But anyhow, my, my years as an undergrad, I was a biochemistry major in Wisconsin. They were fine and I enjoyed the classes. You know, if they actually offered a minor at, at University of Wisconsin, I actually would have been able to minor in philosophy. Took a ton of philosophy classes there, but they didn't have such a thing as minors when I was there. I don't know if they do now, but I really like that that critical and abstract thinking, thinking outside the box, looking at things from different perspectives. But really, it was my time as a disc jockey, hence some of the podcasting, that led to me being a program director and then a station manager for the student radio station on campus that at the time was WLHA and it's now WSUM. That was probably the most instrumental experience during my undergrad years. It led, again, to more leadership opportunities for me, allowed me to diversify myself outside of medicine and the sciences, which I think is really important. And I try and stress with learners that you know it really is important to keep something outside of medicine and have something that grounds you that is not just the sciences all the time. We will be absorbed by it. It will burn us out. And we need to have something else to fall back on in order to maintain your sanity and also just 
again, be a well-rounded individual, I think is an important part. If you are interested more in learning about that experience at WLHA, it's a fascinating story. I love talking about it. It was a really great part of my life. And I, and I had have some really good friends from that experience. I did an episode earlier in February 2022, if you haven't listened to that episode yet. And you may have overlooked it because it was talking about a radio station. It wasn't specifically the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast, but it's under this particular uh, episodes that you can get from the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast that talked about basically the building of a college radio station. So uh, it, it was really a fun episode to do, and it really reflected a lot of that time there. And there was just some great stories of how things just fortuitously fit together to actually go from a station that got shut down during my, I guess it would have been my junior year in college to being at the point where I left University of Wisconsin in 2002 of actually being a full-fledged station was just a, a joy to see that happen. You know, med school, it was a little bit more trying for me. You know, I think for a lot of us being near the top of our class in high school or college, it, it was really more eye-opening for me realizing that that, that wasn't going to be the, the way for me. I wasn't going to be someone that was going to be at the top of my class, nor was it something that was that crucial for me just from a, a grade standpoint. I felt it important. I, I Obviously, like I mentioned, I worked the first couple of years still through med school, and it was just, uh, you know, it was it was a focus, obviously. It was something that I needed to do, but getting, you know, all A's and everything was not going to be the end all be all for me. And, and I didn't, and it was okay. I, you know, passed all my boards the first time through. So it wasn't something that I, I slacked. Uh, certainly I, I, you know, it, it wasn't something that I didn't care about, but you know, the basic sciences weren't what I was most interested in. It was actually seeing patients. And that's where I had the first opportunity to really get kind of into sports medicine. And my very first episode of the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast, back two and a half years ago now, I talked about my experience. And with my mentor, we interviewed them, Dr. Gray Landry at the University of Wisconsin. He was part of the what was called the Generalist Practice Partners Program at that time, the GPP program, where in the first year, they would partner us up with a primary care physician to learn more about history taking and physical exam. And that was my opportunity to learn about that. And I knew at that time I probably wanted to go into pediatrics. I really loved working with kids. Uh, they just they just made things a happier experience. I liked the idea of working with someone, or working with kids that maybe weren't loaded with a bajillion different medical diagnoses and and uh, a bajillion uh, medications that they may have been on. And really just looking at that age group in general as just being a fun group to talk to. So I knew I wanted to do peds, but it really was Greg Landry and knowing that he was a pediatrician who also did sports medicine. I'm like, wow, you can actually do both of these things together. That really spurred my interest in sports medicine. It also was a little bit about orthopedics kind of being an afterthought in medical school. I think many can relate that the orthopedic things outside of gross anatomy lab, there's not a lot of medical schools that offer classes in orthopedics. What I really like at Washington University, and this was started by really kind of spearheaded a lot by uh, Dr. Marty Boyer here, one of our hand surgeons, who's been a phenomenal mentor to me here as well. They really emphasize getting medical students into the clinical setting for musculoskeletal things, and that could be with rheumatology, us in sports medicine, orthopedics, but getting them comfortable with that and actually having it an intentional part of their training rather than something that's done as an elective, as an example. So it was really a deficiency for me, I thought, part of my training at University of Wisconsin at the time. So you know, when I have a deficiency in an area, it's an area that I get more interested in. And I want to be better in that. And it just happened to be orthopedics in the sports medicine world was something that, that I really gravitated to. And then I had my first orthopedic rotation during my clinical years. And I'll never forget my experience in the OR the first time. And 
God bless his soul. I, I, I love Dr. Orwin, Dr. John Orwin at the University of Wisconsin, but I'll never forget my experience in a case with him. And I was asked to hold a retractor and we all know how that goes as a medical student. And I wasn't doing it perfectly and my arm was getting tired. And certainly this was something that, you know, they could have actually used just a device to hold it up. They didn't really need my arm to hold the retractor for this particular case, but I was. And he kind of, he, he snapped at me during the case for not holding it properly. But the thing I liked about that the most is, is afterwards, he actually came up to me and he apologized for, for that, was not something that I saw commonly out of the surgeons. And I, I have a deep respect for Dr. Orwin, and, and I, I really love him as a person. I having the opportunity to work with him a little bit in clinical rotations later on while I was in residency. So again, I don't have any ill will against Dr. Orwin by any means, but I remember that experience very fondly. But I also remember my other parts of surgical rotation, which is why I did not go into actual orthopedic surgery. And my experiences there were twofold. One is I started off, my very first surgical rotation was in vascular surgery. And I had a case the very first day I was there, we didn't get oriented at all. And I got thrown into this 13-hour vascular surgical case. And just sitting there and observing for 13 hours was awful. So that already gave me an impression, this is not really what I wanted to do. And then the second part of that is uh, with the last name of Halstead, Halstead carries some baggage with it in the world of medicine. If you're uh, familiar with the, the famous Dr. Halstead through Johns Hopkins, who is one of the docs who has their photos or their, their murals up on in Johns Hopkins, Dr. Halstead's pretty well known in the world of general surgery, uh, having many, many techniques that are attributed to him. First, when I was asked on a surgical rotation, did I have any relation? Well, that's actually, Halstead's actually my adopted name. So I don't have a direct relation to Dr. Halstead, but apparently someone in my family, my adopted family knows some sort of connection there. I don't know how, but apparently there is. But the part of that was, as soon as I said that I wasn't really interested in surgery with the last name of Halstead, I got time after time of people telling me how much Dr. Halstead was a cocaine addict and going down that route of stuff. And so clearly they, they weren't very happy and they wanted to downplay the Halstead part of things after all of that. And then obviously pediatrics. I, I mean, again, I just, I loved kids. And so it was really something that I, I really gravitated towards during my first years of medical school. Then I matched in at Madison. I, I was really glad to match there. I really wanted to stay in Madison. I really loved the emphasis that they had on primary care there. My resident class was so fun. We had such a great time. And I, I love all of my residency classmates. We had 13 of us in the class. I remember what we had, we were called switch dinners. So whenever we would switch rotations, and we did this all three years, we would meet up at somebody's house, we would share dinner, and then we would basically sign out our patients to each other for who was going to the next service or not. I was roommates with three of my class mates, Dr. Nina Tripathi, Dr. Debbie Kale, and Dr. Henry Ortega. We shared this historic house in Middleton, Wisconsin that we stayed in, which was a lot of fun, although we, we barely saw each other just from our rotations and then obviously our, our various life obligations at that time and relationships that we had. So that was one thing that was there. I also was a very big tech nerd in residency, and that was around the time that Palm Pilots came out. And actually, just sitting next to me, I have my Palm Tungsten T2 that's still here and my Trio phone from Palm Pilot. And myself and Dr. Rod Tarago, who is also one of my classmates, we were kind of the Palm Pilot nerds, and we brought our residency program and a lot of the attendings up into the world of the use of Palm Pilots and technology and medicine. I actually had a website for a little while called pedspalm.com. So yes, I was totally nerdy in that, where we had all the basically medical links to stuff that was pediatrics that would be useful apps to have for your smartphone at the time or your smart device. So I really got into that kind of stuff. 
I had the fortunate or unfortunate opportunity, it just depends on how you look at it, of being able to do more sports medicine my second year. Dr. Terry McCambridge, who was one of our fellows, who is now out on the East Coast practicing pediatric sports medicine, she left after her first year of fellowship training. So that left myself and the third year resident at the time, Dr. Blaze Nemeth, who became the chief resident before I became the chief resident there. He and I had the opportunity, since we enjoyed sports medicine, to do more sports medicine coverage during my second year, which was fun. And I took every opportunity that I could. There was just lots of opportunities at the University of Wisconsin as a resident to do sports medicine. There was physical opportunities. There was high school coverage. I had a high school that I worked with. That's where I got my first experience working with an athletic trainer, Ryan Berry, who was on my podcast earlier this year when we did a reflection episode with athletic trainers, and Henry Perez-Guerra, who was also one of the athletic trainers who was working with the Wisconsin Badgers, but I also got to work with in, in our clinics. It was a good opportunity for me to get used to the world of having athletic trainers there. And it, it was a model that was great because we had them in the clinics with us. And so that we would work side by side with them in clinics. So they'd help us out with educating us as residents, helping us out, and then also obviously assisting us with sideline things for the schools that they would cover. If you look back at it, it's a great lineage of sports medicine docs that have come from pediatrics from the University of Wisconsin, either as residents or fellows. I'd love to do a family tree someday looking at that, just how that stems out from Greg Landry and then obviously Dave Bernhardt, who is my mentor and who I worked with in our continuity clinic as a general pediatrician for the three years that I was there as a resident. He's been a great friend and colleague and, and confidant to me over the years. And I can't thank him enough for um, all of his support that he's been able to give me. It's also where I got the opportunity to meet Dr. Kevin Walter, who is at the Medical College of Wisconsin. He was actually a pediatric resident at the same time there, just at the other Wisconsin medical school across the state, other residency, I should say. I and mean, we always had kind of this animosity between our two residency programs, kind of subtle there that UW was better than MCOW. And he and I met and we were both chief residents. And so one of the things we tried to do during our chief resident year is we actually brought our two residency programs together for a Brewers game. And that was the hope is to kind of get us meeting together and meeting other residents from other programs. And it turned out that Kevin and I wound up talking to each other the whole time and everybody else basically kind of cordoned themselves off into their individual residency programs. So unfortunately, our grand plan of kind of melding some of the programs and meeting some other colleagues didn't really work as we had hoped. But Kevin and I have had a very similar course and path over the years. I've been able to partner with him on some projects with the American Academy of Pediatrics, and he and I were the co-authors for the clinical report on concussions in adolescents. And so that was a fun thing to work on. And we've, we've had very similar interests over the years, very similar pathways. He actually ended up living in the community that I grew up in, in high school in Brookfield, Wisconsin there. So it's kind of funny how we've had some similar pathways cross uh, with things over the years. But but then again, I, it was not something I was going to stay at Wisconsin. I was advised by both Dr. Bernhardt and Dr. Landry to broaden my horizons a little bit and, and have an experience somewhere else because I really had been at Wisconsin for such a long time. I had worked with both of them for a long time, so I kind of knew how they did things. And so it was it was great advice, and I matched at Vanderbilt, which was actually an interesting match because at the time they were not an accredited fellowship, so it was a big risk on my part that they would get accredited so I could actually sit for my sports medicine boards. Unfortunately, they did. So that was a, a good gamble on my part. It was a two-year fellowship, which was also important to me too. And boy, I'm a big advocate of the two-year fellowship for sports medicine. I think a year is just too short. It's really hard to get research done if you're going to try and do any research, which is a requirement. But then really, I just felt a zillion times more comfortable going into a practice where I was the only primary care sports medicine person 
having done two years rather than just a year. I had tons of autonomy. I was the only fellow there at the time. So they have several fellows there now, including an orthopedic fellow. That was not the case. So I basically had the pick of the litter, so to speak, as far as opportunities for sports, for coverage, being able to do whatever sport I wanted to. That was all super great. And it was just, it was a wonderful experience. And I had great athletic trainers there as well. And I'm probably going to forget somebody when I name these names, but these were all people that were super instrumental to me there. Tom Bossung, uh, Boz, Molly Malone, Jeff Black, who is my first high school athletic trainer at Vanderbilt, who gave me the advice as I was working at one of the inner city schools. He told me, <laughs> he goes, um, don't bring your good car to the high school football games. And well, I, I was a fellow at the time, so I didn't really have a good car. So that was pretty easy. But I never felt unsafe there. There was a couple incidences at the school that I was at that there were some gunshots fired after the game outside of the stadium, but their band was phenomenal. The coach there was phenomenal. It was fun working with the players. I'll never forget a kid, and I tell this story frequently, of a kid named Bubba. Uh, That was his name. One of the linemen there who also happened to be their punter because they did not have anybody else who was willing to kick. And every game after the little shortly into the first quarter, Bubba would come over on the sidelines and he would puke like there was no tomorrow into one of the trash cans that was there. And I would always ask, I would go, Bubba, why are you puking? And he told me that their pregame meal for them for football was eating Mrs. Winner's chicken and biscuits, which was probably not the best choice of having that greasy food right before you would go out to play football. But I asked him, I said, so why do you keep eating it if you, if you uh, wind up throwing up every time? And Papa just turned to me and he goes, but Doc, it's so good. And I couldn't argue with him there. So so he kept doing it and he kept puking. But but I, I left him alone after a while because I knew it was just the Mrs. Winner's chicken and biscuits. And then besides Jeff Black, Chris Mack, Rod Newman, Mike Meyer, who I worked with very closely through the men's basketball there, Patrick Violet, Josh Vandervelden, Ann Castlin, Tim Lee, TJ Reconella, Stacey Earhart, Kim Walter. Uh, I know I'm going to miss some names there. Ed Belmont, Aaron Moore, Christy Reconella, uh, Christy Golden at the time, who actually uh, got to see my oldest, uh, Owen, after only seven days uh, after he was born there, when we took him to a, a basketball game <laughs> and he fell asleep during the basketball game, despite the loud band that was playing at the time, which actually happened to be the band from the high school that I was covering, which was phenomenal. So that was a kind of a nice little little switch there. I got to work with sports physical therapists side by side, and again, too many to name there. And then just great docs that I had the opportunity to work with. Dr. Kelly Richter, who who left early on in the fellowship, which also caused some little angst because we didn't have another person at the time to keep our fellowship potentially accredited from a primary care standpoint. So we had a partnership with one of the other private groups in town, and that's where I got to do a clinical rotation with Buddy Hanna, and he liked the experience so much of, of teaching that he actually came over to Vanderbilt, and Buddy was a great mentor to me, just a great individual in general. Obviously, my program director, Andrew Gregory, who was a year older than me at the time and had just finished his fellowship, so he was, he was pretty raw too, uh, a great teacher and, uh, uh, again, a great mentor. And then the orthopedist I work with, Eric McCarty, who left to go to Colorado, Jed Kuhn, who came in to replace him, great orthopedic surgeons that really were great teachers and really were advocates of us in primary care sports medicine. And I can't forget the godfather, Kurt Spindler. As I tell everybody, Kurt Spindler was a great advocate for us in primary care sports and just sports medicine in general. He loves his Ben and Jerry's. Uh, I was frequently, as many others were, the gophers during clinic to go get Ben and Jerry's. That was just up the road from our clinic and bring it back because he, he liked it so much and told me that was the reason why he runs so he could eat more Ben and Jerry's. 
but he was really an advocate and supporter of us. I, I think honestly he would, and I call him the godfather because I think he would really do anything for us that really were supportive of the program. And I owe his recommendation to my partners at Washington University, where I'm now at, of saying to them, hey, you really need someone like him at your institution because you don't have any primary care sports medicine people there. So I can't thank him enough for his support over the years. And I've had him on a podcast episode as well, talking about his work with the Moon and Mars research studies. So check that episode out if you get a chance. And then I popped into St. Louis. And when I got to St. Louis, obviously it was a new area for me being a Chicago born person. I was never envisioning that I went up at St. Louis as being a Cubs fan. It was really a challenge. The first couple of years working with the St. Louis Cardinals, obviously I could do it with being impartial. I had several of my Cub fan friends tell me you should just hold some of those Cardinals players out longer than they really need to. And obviously I was not going to do that. And I had some actually some great conversations with some of the Cardinals players at spring training, some really fun individuals. But I, I do have to take a moment to really recognize Jay Knopfsinger. He is a, I believe now retired primary care sports doc in pediatrics here. And he really welcomed me to the St. Louis area with open arms. I was very appreciative to that. He was great offering some advice at the early part of my career, as far as things I should do, people I should know. And I really owe a debt of gratitude to Jay for that. And then I've been, had the opportunity to work with some phenomenal athletic trainers here as well. And again, I know I'm going to forget people, but just at the schools that I've directly covered and worked with at Lafayette High School, and then again, now over at Francis Howell High School, which is where my kids have gone, Dean Bryan, Heather Carroll, Cindy Rakovich, Cody Elmendorf, Dean Tiffany. Those are just a few of the athletic trainers I've worked with. There are a lot of athletic trainers out there, and you all know who you are, and I love you to death. And I again, I, I support the heck out of you guys as much as I can in this community. But those are just a few that I've really had the close relationship of working with one-on-one on sidelines on a consistent basis. And then certainly the athletic trainers I've worked with with the Rams, James Lomax, Tyler Williams, Byron Cunningham, Reggie Scott, Jim Anderson, Dake Walden, all great people, no question about that. And they've all been really, really instrumental people in my careers as far as helping develop me and support me throughout my career as well. And then I can't forget acknowledging my partners, Rick Wright, who is now at Vanderbilt, but was one of my original orthopedic surgery partners that was here, Matt Matava, who were instrumental and supportive in bringing me here. And then adding on Rob Rofi, Matt Smith, my colleagues in primary care sports medicine, Tara Blatnick and Kayla Daniel now, Joy English, I have to shout out to her. She was actually, I think, the first resident I had here from emergency medicine who eventually went into sports medicine. So that was a, a personal huge win for me and and just touches me that she's doing so well out in Utah. So I love that. And then I, I can't fail to acknowledge some of the people here in our pediatric or in our orthopedic department who have just been really great mentors to me over the years. Marty Boyer, who I actually did an interview with when I came here. And I think as soon as I said I had interest in educating residents and medical students, I was like grasped on by him. And he saw me as a potential person to help out with what he was doing. And, and I, I love doing that, that role. And I really appreciate Marty's support that he's given me over the years. And honestly, it's been several of my hand surgery colleagues here who have been really instrumental. Chuck Goldfarb has been very helpful for me over the years, who also hosts a podcast and we had on a little while ago. The late Paul Mansky, oh my gosh, if... You know, it's it's somewhat intimidating coming into an orthopedic department as a primary care sports medicine person. But Paul Mansky, God bless him, God bless his soul. He was such a warm and welcoming individual 
to me, um, someone that I get a little teary thinking about this. He was just so welcoming to me when I was uh, starting here and just really was supportive always when I passed by him in the halls or we were at a, a conference would always just acknowledge me and ask how I was doing and how things were going. And I really, really appreciated that. Jeff Johnson as well from our foot and ankle service who who recently retired. He's always been a great supportive colleague over the years. And always, again, looking out and interested in how things are going. Jay Keener and our shoulder service, any of my pediatric orthopedic colleagues here have all been phenomenal and really just good go-to people. And not that other people in my department are not, but those are just several of the individuals who just stand out to me besides my direct sports medicine partners who have just been so supportive and helpful for me over the years here and just making me feel comfortable and part of the department. But that's, that's Wash U. And as I'm going on my role here, or my, uh, my continuous role here of, of, of other people who have really kind of meant something to me here in St. Louis, I can't fail to acknowledge the Missouri State High School Activities Association and three key individuals there, Greg Stahl, Harvey Richards, and Kerwin Erhan. We have some phenomenal people that are on the staff there that are humongous advocates of what we do in sports medicine and how we advocate for our athletes. And without them, we really, I don't think we can do what we do in Missouri to really help further the health and safety of our athletes at the high school level. They are phenomenal people. I'm you know, Harvey retired. We've got Greg Stahl there still. Kerwin's retiring this year. I just, I can't thank them enough. We also have a great group of athletic trainers and doctors on the committee. And I, for, for me, it's just, it's a pleasure to work with them and, and hash through things and debate about things and go through various kind of scenarios of how we can make this be a better state for supporting the health and safety of athletes. And, and it's a consistent thing. And we all have that passion that it, it's just, it's unmatched. It's really been a great opportunity. And later today, since we're releasing this episode on my big 5-0, it actually probably will be already have happened. I was just humbled to receive a Distinguished Service Award that's presented to me today from the Missouri State High School Activities Association. I've been working with their Sports Medicine Advisory Committee for a little over 10 years now. And I got started there just by coming to a meeting because they are technically open meetings. And I came there one day and just said, hey, I just want to sit in and see what things are doing. I'm invited. I kind of sat there, gave a little bit of two cents at times when I had an opportunity for some things that I felt were relevant, that I had some expertise in in the world of concussion. And then I got invited back and I uh, haven't been asked to leave since. And, and unless they ask me to leave, I'll, I'll be staying for a little while because I really, really enjoy this role. And then moving outside of that, just kind of from a more national level of people that really have meant a lot to me, Angie Emanuel at the American Academy of Pediatrics, she is the person we have at the AAP who oversees the Council on Sports Medicine and Fitness. And boy, if you ever want to have another person who works tirelessly to help support our endeavors and really goes to bat for young athletes and what we do as physicians and helping to support us so we can get things done through the American Academy of Pediatrics, she is the person. She's been there as long as I know and was uh, very instrumental when I was there working uh, as an elected member for the Council on Sports Medicine and Fitness for the six years and then for the times that uh, I've continued to work with projects that the AAP have put on over the years, including some recent projects that we've been doing with the ECHO platform of learning for remote rural learning, which have just been great. So I, I've wanted to have her on a podcast just to talk about her role and, and feature her as a, an individual, but unfortunately she's declined being very humble, but uh, uh, maybe someday I can I can get her on and we can talk about things a little bit more and just what happens and how she has been such a pivotal role uh, with the American Academy of Pediatrics and our, our efforts in sports medicine. And then really just too many good friends and colleagues to be complete and acknowledge all of them. 
I, I made a list of some that just off the top of my head are people that I've worked very closely with on projects over the years with various committees and things. Andy Peterson, Allison Brooks, Joel Brenner, Cynthia Labella, John Devine, Suzanne Briskin, Shane Miller, Becky Demarest, Brooke Pingle, Paul Stricker, Greg Canty, Alex Diamond, Blaze Nemeth, Kelsey Logan, Jeff Mianis, Cody Moffitt, Becca Carl, Michelle Labotte, Steve Rice, Amanda Weiss-Kelly, Bernie Griesmer, Tina Master, Matt Grady, Chris Katuris, Jason Zaremski, Stan Herring, Nira Gianthi, Keith Loud. Those are all people. And again, I know I'm missing some people out there. It's not that I'm not acknowledging you. And there's many of those that, that I really have done a lot of work with over the years and efforts. And I just, I thank all of them for tolerating me at times for stuff that I've tried to initiate or do, but also being very supportive along the way as well. Without their support, without their knowledge and expertise and just wonderfully smart people. You know, again, I, I think we don't give enough credit to each other as far as what we do in the world of pediatric sports medicine. And, and again, I really, I thank all of them and many more of you that again, that I, I'm sure I, I will regret not having named. It's one of those things like an award ceremony, right? And then two other individuals outside of the pediatric sports medicine world directly, Karen McAvoy and Brenda Egan Johnson. I can't say enough about those two women. As someone who was interested in the world of concussions and then really had kind of this, this kind of inkling, I'm like, how do we really do things well with kids in school? And realizing that I would be kind of pulling stuff out of my backside of trying to really say how we should do stuff in school without their input as people who are in that world a ton. They have brought my knowledge base of what needs to happen with return to learn and how do we navigate school systems? How do I learn the school speak? I, I cannot thank those two women enough for their support. I've had the pleasure of being able to write several articles with them over the years on topics regarding the area of return to learn. And they're just extremely smart individuals, extremely caring individuals, and they are just a pleasure to work with at each and every avenue that I have that opportunity to do so. And if you get the opportunity to work with them or collaborate with them, especially in the world of concussion and return to learn, I, I would take advantage of that. They are just a, a wealth of knowledge in that area. And like I said, really have brought my knowledge base up and also, again, humbled me thinking that I probably knew more than I probably did about the world of return to learn and grounding me in realizing that, hey, maybe this isn't really the right approach for this. And maybe we need to think about it a different way and think about it in terms of rather than us from the medicine world, thinking about it from the educator's world. That really opened my eyes into the world of return to learn and really kind of expanded how I approach that now and how I advocate for kids for return to learn as well. And as I've mentioned before on previous episodes, I'm a late to the research world. I always thought I wanted to do something from a clinical research standpoint, but never really got on, on any sort of kind of footing for that as I was going through things. And it was just it was just hard trying to figure out a way to do that, especially as just a solo person here in primary care sports medicine, not having a great background in research to begin with. And I cannot say enough about the PRISM group from that opportunity it's been phenomenal for me to work with some really, really smart individuals, both on a concussion research interest group and the bone stress injury research group. I actually just got off of a meeting a little bit ago with our bone stress injury group, and I have a concussion meeting tomorrow talking about some just really interesting research in the world of pediatric sports medicine and those two topic areas, which I have a lot of passion and interest about. And it's been great to be able to broaden into this world with these other experts and being able to lend my experiences in clinic and having that cohort of patients, but also having people have a much greater background 
in sports medicine research to lean on and guide me. David Howell can't stress enough how phenomenal he is in the world of concussion. And just again, being able to collaborate with the, the Scope Research Network now is just, it's great. I mean, Emily Krauss, who's leading our bone stress injury research group. Again, I can't say enough about those individuals and the people there and how collaborative they want to be and how really that helps further our research. And, and again, it's it's been great <laughs> getting in my late 40s and starting research clinically and seeing the fruits of that as well. I can't neglect coaches. I've had three coaches that I really, well, four coaches, I guess I could say that really have been instrumental in my development. Coach Fitzgeralds, who was the high school football coach at Procone High School, he, I believe, was a former player for the Eagles, and he was at that first high school that I worked with, and he just made things very comfortable for me as this fellow and this this rookie sports medicine doc on the sidelines. Coach Boyd Manny at Lafayette High School, who was the first high school I worked with here in St. Louis, boy, what an advocate for athlete safety. I cannot stress that enough. Just a, just a really kind individual, someone who would definitely not risk the health of an athlete for the sake of a football game, and uh, cannot say enough good words about him. And uh, it was really sad when our group uh, no longer was going to be providing coverage at his high school of being able to not be on the sidelines with him on a Friday night on a regular basis. Coach Jim Lohr at MICDS High School, a cross-country and track coach there. He was the first coach I remember here in St. Louis who actually realized that he had a pattern of injuries in his girl runners and called me up one day and said, hey, what am I doing wrong? I'm getting my girls hurt. And he actually was looking out for this. And so we talked about it a little bit and said, probably this was just a bad luck year, but he wanted to be proactive about it. So he actually invited me to speak to his female athletes and also the parents. And we had a couple of sit down sessions talking about various things relative to the female runner and why we need to address these things preseason and, 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 how we can reduce injuries. And it was just a great relationship. And I really thrived on that. It's funny how much I've offered to other coaches that I, I'm more than willing to talk with them about stuff and very few who have taken up that, uh, that opportunity. You know, again, we're here to keep athletes on the field or on the court, not in our offices and, and just can't say enough good things about Jim, his proactive nature as a coach. And just, again, looking at the caring he had about the health and safety and well-being of his uh, female runners. And then Coach Jeff Fisher at the professional level, we had some things that uh, happened during our Rams years. You know, again, they weren't great years as far as record and things like that. In the 11 seasons I worked with the St. Louis Rams, I didn't see a playoff game from the Rams, at least. Uh, I got to see a lot on TV during those years, but nothing that we got to personally experience. I was I was there in the lean years of the Rams, and I, I kind of joke it was my fault because I joined the staff. and we, we hadn't been to a playoff since then. Uh, and then I left the staff, and now, look, they've gone to the Super Bowl once and then won the Super Bowl this last year. <laughs> So, so clearly I had some bad juju for the team, but coach Jeff Fisher was also a huge advocate for his athletes there and really was very respectful of the sports medicine staff and just a good person to talk to was an open ear when we had things that we wanted to offer as far as advice and, and how to do things. So again, can't say enough about coach Fisher. And then, you know, as again, I go through these things here and, and again, you, you may or may not still be listening at this point, but. Again, it's my opportunity to use this podcast to do this and helpful for me. Just my family in general. Again, I mentioned my my mom passed away when I was 15. She had remarried prior to that, and, and my stepfather adopted us, which is why my last name is Halstead. And I'm super thankful for, for him for that. My actual father still was very close to and still got to be with him and know him throughout the rest of my adult life. Passed away unexpectedly three years ago, which was kind of a shock. He had come to the St. Louis area after he had some struggles health-wise, and so it was something 
something that we were helping to take care of him for several years before that happened. But again, it was an unexpected passing, but I know how much that he was very proud of what I did. I know he would always talk about his doctor son and I'm glad I made him proud, but certainly my, my, my stepfather, Tom, and then he remarried to, uh, I guess I would be considered my stepmother, Jeannie, super supportive people over the years. I, my brother and sister, Brian and Laura, I, I truly regret the fact that, that we don't talk as often as we probably should or could. I, I really treasure those moments when we can. I miss the fact that I would get a free trip out to Arizona with the Rams every year that I could get to meet up with them on a regular basis. And so that's become a little bit more sparse. So I do look forward to when we have our sports medicine meetings in the Phoenix areas and I do get an opportunity to still get close to them and, and get to visit my niece and nephew and, and their families. But boy, they, they are, uh, I know, supportive of me and what I do. And my brother being a big sports fan loves the fact that I'm a sports medicine doctor and he hopes I give him inside information, but he doesn't really know that I don't really give him the inside information that he's hoping for. My in-laws, Rick and Monica, Boy, if you ever get lucky marrying into a family who has extremely supportive uh, people, uh, Rick and Monica are, are, are those people. They're, they're just wonderful, and I, I cannot say how grateful I am to have married into the Iverson family and their support. And that includes my brothers-in-law, Dan and Scott. Uh, Scott, who's my fellow Cubs fan person, and then Dan, who uh, I get to be as sort of de facto remote consult for emergency sports medicine things for his phenomenal repetitive state champion cross-country team in Illinois. It's a pleasure to talk with him about his runners and be able to give him some some words of wisdom, but also seeing how impressive of a coach he is and how uh, firm of a grasp he has on various sports medicine topics and keeping his girls safe as runners and, and doing healthy things for them in supporting them. And so I'm super thankful for having them as, as part of my family and obviously my nieces and nephews and my, my brother-in-law's wives as well. My kids, you know, I, I, in talking about my kids, uh, so my oldest is now in college, finished his first year of college, and my other two are in, in high school and getting close to that college age. How proud of a dad am I of them? Just phenomenal kids, so supportive of what I've done over the years. And, and I, you know, again, I have regrets. And one of the things I talk to learners about is making sure that you do say no to things. There were several events that probably I missed things that I, I should have probably prioritized my family for instead. And I know those were some rough years early on for my wife when I was traveling with teams and doing evening events and she's stuck taking care of the kids at home. Boy, I'm glad later on in life that, uh, well, first that my wife opened my eyes that I needed to pull back the reins a little bit. Um, but then also the fact that I've, I've been able to see them grow into wonderful young men and a young woman in what they do, just watching how they are as people, seeing what they've done, both from a standpoint of athletics and academics and in the arts for my middle son. It's just a treat to watch them and to see them grow into young adults. I'm I'm just glad I've had the opportunities I've been able to share experiences with them over the years. One little uh, tidbit that I, I did that I would encourage others to do if you have the opportunity to do this. I, I stole this idea from my in-laws where they did what was called a 10 trip with each of their grandkids where they would take them at the age of 10 for a trip to where they wanted to go, usually for about a week. So I thought that was kind of a neat idea. So what I decided to do is we did a 13 trip. So when my kids each turned 13, they got to pick what they wanted to do with dad uh, alone for a week. 
So my oldest, we he wanted to see the Sports Hall of Fame. So we went and traveled and went to all the Sports Hall of Fames, which were fortunately on the East Coast. So it made it very convenient. Then we saw some baseball games along the way at various stadiums. So that was a, a, a great trip. My middle son wanted to drive Route 66. So we, we'd been the route from Chicago to St. Louis plenty of times. So we started in St. Louis and drove out to Santa Monica and, and uh, saw all sorts of stuff along the way. And I think he probably got sick of the the yet another old gas station that we stopped at along the way. But boy, that was a, a fun week and a fun trip. And then my daughter wanted to go out to LA and we went to five theme parks and went to the beach and realized that I can't tolerate that many roller coasters in that short period of time anymore, which is really disheartening to me. But those experiences and just watching them in their events that they've done from athletics, seeing them recognized as wonderful people in academics and the honors that they've received. And then obviously watching my son perform in various musicals and plays and just how incredible he is as an actor is really phenomenal. And just, again, I, I can't be more proud of them as individuals. And then um, last but not least, my wife, Nicole, I, I do thank her for, again, having the wherewithal to tell me to start to have no in my vocabulary. When I was asked to do lots of speaking engagements, she actually told me at one point, would you just mind just checking with me next time before you say yes to the next one? And every speaking engagement I've had since then, uh, I've been sure to ask her and say, is this, is this cool? So if you are going to ask me for a speaking engagement, you're going to have to get approval from me and my wife. So it grounded me though, and made me realize that I needed to to take a break. And I did need to have no in my vocabulary because that was not something that I really felt that I had at the time. And I don't feel guilty about that anymore. I did early in the start of saying no, but I really don't anymore because I, I think it's super, super important for us to have that work-life balance that we all talk about. And there are some things that are truly more important than some of those things that are outside that are still work-related especially when we know that there there are truly other people who can uh, to serve in those roles too. So it's sharing the wealth a little bit that you don't have to be the one that does it all, all the time. She's been so supportive to me over the years, really has encouraged me, is thrilled when I'm thrilled, sad when I'm sad about stuff, angry when I'm angry about stuff. One of these days, and and she has told me this many times, she wants to be on my podcast. So I will make a promise today on this podcast that I will have my wife on at some point to talk about something. We'll still have to figure out what exactly that's going to be, but we will we will do that. So I'm making the promise right now on this podcast episode today that I will have my wife on my podcast to talk about something at some point. So so that will happen. She and I have grown together in our faith over our 20 years of marriage now, and it's been a great journey. Just thrilled to have her a partner. I'm also very regretful that she never got the opportunity to meet my mom and uh, my mom not technically being able to meet her. I certainly think my my mom had some role from above as far as putting us together. But it is one of those things that, again, it, there's those things that you just wish would have been able to happen, but but didn't. She's a phenomenal mother. She has been growing into a advocate and champion for female athletes, which I know that she would have done previously, but is doing more so. I think she's a phenomenal coach and is really someone who loves working with kids as well and seeing kids, especially the teenagers, especially those that may or may not feel like they're seen or heard on a regular basis. She really loves working with the runners at the school that we're at. 
and really uh, trying to help see them grow as athletes and also just as people. And she's certainly been that way of helping me grow as a physician, a husband, a father, and just a, a friend. I cannot thank my wife enough, and, and I love her to death as I do my kids. And I'll end with this. I, you know, I have this platform here. I'm recording this on the day that unfortunately we heard about 14 kids being killed in Texas. We need to do better in this country. I don't know how others feel about this, but I am so sick and tired of the divisiveness in this country. Why cannot we sit down and try and hash things out? Why? Why do we have to be in silos? Why do we have to be on separate teams? I want someone that is willing, who has maybe a different opinion than me, to be able to sit down and have a constructive conversation about something and make some change. We can do that. Okay, we can. We need to stop fighting against each other. It needs to be stopped with the rhetoric of us versus them. It's not productive. It's not working. That's not making any of us healthier. It's making us angrier. And we we really need to work better at this. And as I get older, I'm not going to stay quiet when I see something that happens that, that I don't feel is right. And if I'm not saying or doing something about an injustice, I'm basically being complicit with that. I really do feel that way. And I don't want to leave this earth being known like the quote in Hamilton that Alexander Hamilton had for James Burr, where Burr is, isn't known for what he's against or what he's for. Uh, again, I, I feel I can advocate for stuff and I, I am very willing to listen to someone on the other side and their their points. And again, I want to have that healthy dialogue. So I, I hope we can do that. I hope we elect individuals who can do that because I do not see where our elected officials are out there to work for us as their elected constituents. And I don't see them trying to do anything that's productive and working across the aisle to get things done. It's more, how do I increase my power? How do I increase my social media outreach? How do I get more likes about stuff? How do I create more outrage rather than how can we make our country a better country to live in, to be in, and support all of the people in this country rather than a select few? So uh, I will get off my soapbox there and maybe you've turned me off. You probably have turned me off already. I don't know at this point since this is pretty lengthy. Again, I, I just want to end with this. You know, I uh, I truly do, as I end every episode, I, I thank our listeners of the podcast. We've really seen a steady growth of this podcast over the last two and a half years. It's been truly fun to do. I, I really have to thank my good high school friend, Mike Wilkerson, who produces this and helps promote the podcast for giving me that nudge of encouragement to take the plunge into the world of podcasting. It's been truly fun and a blast, and it's given me an opportunity to have now a documented recording of me being able to thank those that have played a significant role in my life. And that is meaningful to me. I don't think we thank each other enough. I don't think we acknowledge any or or what they really have truly meant to us. And all the people I've mentioned who have supported me, I, I love you guys. I'm really grateful for everything you guys have done to help support me over the years. I couldn't have done it without you. Uh, it's not a goodbye by any means here. Um, we're certainly going to be continuing this podcast. Boy, I you know I wanted to have this grandiose idea. I had this idea in my head several months ago that I wanted to write a letter to several people. And then as I got through my list of people who I really wanted to send a letter to, I'm like, that's a lot of people and I don't have enough time to write letters to all these people. So I figured I'd do this Reflections at 50 podcast and, and do at least some of that. And then I will probably pick some people on that list to send some individualized letters to just again, acknowledging them and, and sending things, talking about things further with them about what they truly have meant to my career. And you know, if you have people like that in your life, I encourage you to reach out to them as well. 
just thank them. I've been I've been tickled and really honored and humbled when people have acknowledged me of playing a role in that that I don't feel like I've honestly had that big of a role, but uh, acting to them as a mentor. And I hope that I've been able to do that for lots of people, and I hope I will continue to be able to do that for people over the next decade plus uh, of my career. So thank you again. Thank you for having a little patience with listening to me reflect at the age of 50. <laughs> Consider this my midlife crisis episode. I don't know. It's not really a crisis, but just something that, again, I wanted to be able to acknowledge all those wonderful individuals uh, who have been really instrumental in developing me as a physician and into the world of sports medicine. Uh, I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.